Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of interviewing uh, Dr. Giuseppe Caruso, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology Division of Gynecologic Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And he is the author of a really great review article uh, titled Systemic Therapy, De-Escalation in Advanced Ovarian Cancer, A New Era on the Horizon. Um, he's also one of the uh, fellows for the International Journal and has been doing an amazing job as well. So, Giuseppe, uh, first, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and uh, congratulations on, on this excellent publication and uh, a welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me back, Professor Ramirez. I am so excited to participate in this uh, new podcast. Yes, uh, I'm I'm excited to speak to you about uh, this article as well. Always uh, learn so much from um, uh, having these discussions with you. Um, so let's get right to it. Let's start by discussing what is the escalation of therapy? Uh, what would be different manifestations of this approach? Yeah, thank you for this uh, question. It's uh, really important to understand the rationale behind systemic therapy de-escalation in ovarian cancer. You know, this is really a new frontier in the treatment of advanced ovarian cancer. I think a few years ago, no one would have uh, imagined that we would even be talking about de-escalation in the primary treatment of such a lethal malignancy. But this is uh, the miracle of science and, and progress. So uh, basically, de-escalation therapy aims to reduce the intensity and or the duration of treatment without compromising survival. So we want to reduce toxicity and improve the overall quality of life of our patients. And... Uh, this is kind of the opposite of what we are used to doing in oncology, because usually we focus on areas of uh, escalation. We want to find new treatments to improve our patient outcomes, but more treatment is not always better. Sometimes less is more. Um, what is important is to find the right targeted and uh, personalized treatment. And uh, probably the term de-escalation is kind of uh, misleading and uh, better terms might be optimization or tailoring of treatment. And uh, the rationale for trying to de-escalate in ovarian cancer is based on the improved outcomes that we have seen with the introduction of uh, uh, targeted therapies, in particular with PARP inhibitors. So um, PARP inhibitors are so effective that properly selected patients with a favorable prognosis may require less systemic treatment to achieve the same oncologic outcomes. And I know we will have time to clarify this later. Uh, I want to stress one last thing before we go on. Uh, we are talking about de-escalation of systemic treatment, not the current surgical treatment. Uh, we have no doubt about the key role of surgery as a mainstay of uh, primary treatment in ovarian cancer. And uh, this is something uh, very important. Very well. Um, now, Giuseppe, you know, the introduction of uh, PARP inhibitors as first-line maintenance therapy in BRCA-mutated HR-deficient ovarian cancer really has shown unprecedented survival rates after decades of often disappointing trials in ovarian cancer research. Now, given these outstanding results, why are we now talking about reducing the duration or even avoiding maintenance therapy in these patients? Uh, well, now that we have been able to uh, 
prolonged survival in at least a selected subset of ovarian cancer patients with a favorable biomarker profile, we should try our best to see if we can achieve the same results while reducing toxicity. Because preserving the quality of life in long-term survivors is, uh, is critical. And uh, even, even though PARP inhibitors are targeted therapies, they're still associated with adverse events. And we know about the recent concerns regarding the long-term risk of myeloid neoplasiums. So this is why we should try to reduce PARP maintenance. And uh, what evidence do we have? Well, we, we know that PARP inhibitors are currently used for two or three years, and uh, this is because we want to reduce the risk of relapse during the most critical window for relapse. But um, if we look at the Kaplan-Meier survival curves of the pivotal phase three trials in the primary setting, uh, we see that the biggest benefit is seen during the first, let's say, 12, 15 months. After that, there seems to be no relevant difference between PARP inhibitor arm and the control arm. So there is at, le at least room for speculating that a shorter PARP maintenance exposure may be sufficient for a selected subpopulation. And uh, if we want to try to take one step further, another major challenge will be to identify those patients who do not even need PARP inhibitor in the first line. And uh, why is that? Because um, in the solo one trial, around 25% of BRCA mutated patients had a good prognosis and were long-term survivors without the need for PARP inhibitor. So we really want to know who are these patients and a deeper insight into the types and locations of BRCA mutations, um, as well as functional HRD testing will be the key to answer this question and uh, potentially uh, omitting PARP maintenance in selected patients. So this is what we really need to do now for our patients, and uh, this is our future challenge. Yeah, so let's talk about the upfront setting. Um, who would be a potential candidate for de-escalation? You actually speak of not one, but you talk about five different strategies. Can you expand on these? Yeah, thank you for this, uh, this question. This allows me to clarify some key requirements when talking about this challenging topic. Um, again, we need to remind that ovarian cancer is the most lethal gynecologic malignancy and uh, appropriate selection criteria for de-escalation are essential to avoid under treatment. So uh, what are the key requirements? First, uh, the presence of BRCA gene mutations and or homologous recombination deficiency, which are positive predictive biomarkers of PARP efficacy. And this is because we can try de-escalating approaches if we can rely on the maximum efficacy of PARP inhibitors. And second, the absence of uh, macroscopic residual disease after surgery or other high-risk clinical factors. So we are really looking at a very specific and ideal subpopulation with a favorable prognosis. And uh, as you said, we can think of five different strategies warranting investigation in future trials. Um, briefly, shift PARP inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting instead of uh, chemotherapy or with a reduced amount of chemotherapy, we can reduce the number of adjuvant chemotherapy cycles after primary debulking surgery, so before starting PARP maintenance therapy. We can also reduce the duration of PARP maintenance, which means stopping PARP inhibitor before two years for olaparib and rucaparib and three years for niraparib. 
Uh, we can also start the PARP inhibitor directly after interval debulking surgery. So, you know, if we use neoadjuvant chemotherapy and we had surgery with no residual disease, then we directly directly start the PARP inhibitor after surgery without uh, giving additional adjuvant chemotherapy. And the last one, which is very appealing, is also the possibility of uh, omitting uh, maintenance ther therapy. As we said, um, we will be able to deepen our knowledge on the predictive role of specific types and locations of BRCA mutations. Uh, and so we can even omit PARP inhibitor in these selected patients. And so uh, this is an overview of, of what we have now on our plate, but I want to say that it's uh, hypothesis generating. We need more trials and, uh, and more evidence. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how all of these options may uh, impact the, the standard of care in, uh, in ovarian cancer proven of benefit in, uh, in future trials. Now, I wanna get into some of the questions uh, from your co-fellows actually. Um, uh, Matt Wager from the University of Wisconsin, um, he has shifting PARP inhibitor therapy to the neoadjuvant setting is an appealing strategy to reduce morbidity related to neoadjuvant or even adjuvant chemotherapy. What data is needed to safely and ethically re-examine these medications in the primary treatment setting, knowing that in other clinical scenarios, PARP inhibitor as cancer treatment has been somewhat deleterious? Thank you for the question. Um, we needed to make some clarifications here, I think. Um, so uh, we have no doubts on the efficacy of PARP inhibitor in the primary setting. We have seen uh, extraordinary and unprecedented survival curves, especially in BRCA mutated and uh, HR deficient patients. So the, the new regulatory actions recently taken by the FDA on PARP inhibitor refer to the recurrent maintenance setting, specifically the updated overall survival data from the NOVA and ARIEL3 trials, and they concern non-BRCA mutated patients. And these data were not confirmed in another similar trial, which is the NORA trial. And so the jury is still out on this. And uh, this is why the EMA in Europe did not agree with the FDA approval, uh, withdrawal, sorry. And uh, we are still using PARP inhibitor in relapsed patients without a BRCA mutation. Um, that being said, um, it seems that the earlier PARP inhibitor are used, the better their efficacy and risk benefit profile. And this is why we're interested in exploring their potential use even earlier in the new adjuvant setting. And the rationale is uh, very compelling. Uh, to deliver a targeted therapy as early as possible in a biomarker-selected population, given that the first line is the optimal setting to achieve a cure. Uh, but we still have limited and early-phase data for the neoadjuvant setting, mostly mm, from the NOW trial, and uh, there are other trials ongoing in this same setting, but we need to wait for definitive results. Excellent. Um, this other question comes from uh, uh, another one of your colleagues, Luigi Davitis. Um, he asked, when you talk about shifting PARP inhibitors in the neoadjuvant setting, a potential drawback is a long-term risk of myeloid neoplasms. Your manuscript clearly states that more evidence is needed. However, since the risk in the adjuvant setting is much lower than in the recurrent setting, would you agree that the risk in the neoadjuvant setting might be even lower? Can you comment on that? Um, this is a, a very interesting question. Um, we need to remind that 
the pathogenesis of myelodineoplasiums is uh, likely multifactorial and seems to be related to genetic predisposition and uh, the synergistic interaction between PARP inhibitor and cumulative platinum exposure. And this is why the use of PARP inhibitor in the recurrent setting after multiple lines of platinum has been associated with an increased risk of myeloid neoplasiums compared to PARP inhibitor used in the primary setting. Uh, the, the impacts on long-term toxicity when using PARP inhibitor in the neoadjuvant setting remains to be uh, to be clarified. But what I believe is that if we use PARP inhibitor in the primary setting, um, either new adjuvant and or maintenance set setting, we have an extremely low risk of myeloid neoplasiums. Um, and I don't think that when using PARP inhibitor in the new adjuvant setting, this risk will be even lower. And uh, this is because these patients will also receive PARP inhibitor as maintenance after surgery. So they won't just receive PARP inhibitor as a new adjuvant setting, as a new adjuvant treatment. Um, but I wouldn't be so worried about myeloid neoplasiums if we use PARP inhibitor in the primary setting. Our concern is, uh, is in the recurrent setting, where currently we use the PARP inhibitor until an acceptable tox toxicity or until further progression. Yeah, and this is a, another question pertaining to the neoadjuvant setting. This is from uh, Seda Sahinakar in Turkey. Um, she asks, how should the case be managed when inadequate response to the use of PARP inhibitors in the neoadjuvant chemotherapy setting? And I guess it's a speculating PARP inhibitor in combination with chemotherapy or even potentially PARP inhibitor alone as neoadjuvant. What do we do with those patients? Yeah, well, uh, I think that the answer like is uh, is very simple here because patients with uh, disease progression or a response that is not amenable to surgery after uh, two three cycles of new adjuvant treatment with the PARP inhibitor would undergo the standard management, and so they would receive uh, the standard chemotherapy with paclitaxel and carboplatin, and then surgery is if feasible, and then adjuvant chemotherapy and uh, and possibly maintenance therapy. And this is also the design of current clinical trials like the NOW trial with Olaparib. So the answer is that they just, basically they would just undergo the standard treatment. Okay. Um, this question from uh, Guido Balzacchi in Argentina. In many developing countries, low resource countries, the time to have a medical consultation with a geneticist and afterwards to test for BRCA status may be exceedingly long. How could this be overcome if PARP inhibitors were used as a neoadjuvant treatment? Yeah, this is a tough question. Um, the, the first thing to consider is that, um, as we often say, ovarian cancer patients really need to be uh, centralized in referral centers where the best treatment options can be provided. And uh, I think that now B B B BRCA testing, BRCA testing is uh, um, essential for, for these patients. Um, we don't really need the geneticist to test for tumor, tumor BRCA mutations or homologous recombination deficiency. Uh, all non-mucinous uh, epithelial ovarian cancers should be tested for tumor BRCA mutations at a diagnosis. So once we have decided that our patient is not amenable to receive uh, of receiving um, primary surgery, and we have obtained, uh, let's say, a biopsy to confirm the diagnosis, we test for tumor mutation. This helps to guide our strategy. And then in case of tumor mutation, we will refer our patients to a geneticist to test for germline mutations and, uh, 
hereditary syndromes. Um, but my guess is that without the ability uh, to quickly quickly assess either germline or tumor bracket status or HR deficiency, this approach would be not feasible. And so uh, low resource centers would continue to rely on new adjuvant chemotherapy, which remains actually the current standard. And we have no doubt that is effective. Yeah. Uh, this next question is back from Luigi Davitis, and um, he's asking about, you know, PARP inhibitors alone after surgery. Um, he says, an exciting possibility is the use of PARP inhibitors alone after surgery in selected patients. Can you comment on the existing evidence to support this idea? Would you wait for the results of the N plus trial before moving forward? Perhaps you can explain a little bit as to what is the N plus trial. Yeah, well, um, I think that it is very uh, unlikely that we will completely omit adjuvant chemotherapy after surgery in the primary setting. Uh, Platinum-based chemotherapy is a milestone in ovarian cancer treatment, and we really need to be careful here. Uh, the NPLAS trial is uh, uh, basically looking at the possibility of giving uh, three cycles instead of six cycles in HR-deficient patients with no residual disease after primary surgery. So again, a very carefully selected population, and it's not a complete omission. It's a reduction in cycles of chemotherapy. And the rationale is strong. Um, given the extraordinary efficacy of PARP inhibitors in selected patients uh, with a favorable biomarker profile, it is reasonable to speculate that these patients could uh, maintain their good prognosis with a reduced amount of adjuvant chemotherapy. But this is just a hypothesis. We have no proof yet, and we need to wait for the results of, on of ongoing trials, including the NPLAS trial, before we can say anything about the safety and efficacy of reduced adjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, Giuseppe, this next question comes from Jorge Hegel in, in Venezuela. And um, he's asking you, likely to speculate, but obviously given the amount of uh, um, knowledge that you have uh, developed in studying this, this important topic, um, he's asking, do you consider that the time could come when this uh, PARP inhibitor therapy could completely replace chemotherapy, particularly in patients who are BRCA uh, mutated? Yeah, uh, again, um, I think that chemotherapy represents uh, a corner store of treatment and uh, it has been the actually the only effective systemic treatment in ovarian cancer for years. So um, I think that it is unlikely that chemotherapy-free strategies using PARP inhibitor will completely replace uh, the chemotherapy milestone in the, in the primary setting. Um, however, we, we have some attempts, some examples of uh, chemotherapy omission in the research setting, uh, but this is uh, uh, only hypothesis generating and we need to be careful not to make too much speculations, you know. But um, in the preliminary results of the NOW trial, three patients were so enthusiastic about their response to new adjuvant PARP inhibitor and uh, their complete site reduction that they declined uh, adjuvant chemotherapy and instead switched to PARP inhibitor immediately after surgery. So uh, it will be very interesting to see their long-term outcomes. And also in the uh, NEO trial, so in the recurrent setting, there is an arm where patients will receive uh, PARP inhibitor both before and after uh, secondary cytoreductive surgery without standard chemotherapy. 
but we need to to wait for more solid evidence to determine if this is uh, an effective and uh, and safe approach. Um, I think that it is uh, very unlikely that we will fully replace chemotherapy in the primary setting. I think that we will probably de-escalate chemotherapy, possibly reduce the number of cycles, reduce or even avoid maintenance therapy in selected patients. Um, and in the recurrent setting, um, the, the strategy of providing chemotherapy-free regimens is more related to the idea of delaying the use of chemotherapy and reducing um, cumulative toxicity in patients who are going to have multiple relapses and multiple lines of treatment. So it's more of a, of a sequencing strategy rather than omitting chemotherapy. Very well. Um, you know, and certainly, uh, Giuseppe, obviously you, you bring up lots of uh, potential strategy for de-escalation, yeah, and you seem very optimistic about some of these possible strategies. This next question comes from Jessica Mauro, and she says, uh, are there absolute contraindications for de-escalation of uh, treatment in the first-line setting? Yeah, thanks for this uh, question, because it allows me to emphasize some key concepts. You know, while I was writing this paper with uh, Professor Nicoletta Colombo, at some point um, we were afraid that this paper could be somehow misinterpreted because uh, we need to be very careful when we talk about de-escalation in a lethal malignancy like ovarian cancer. Um, this approach can be investigated if we have some specific prerequisites, if we have selected patients with a favorable prognosis. So it's a very specific setting. We are talking about BRCA mutated or HR deficient patients with no residual disease after surgery. And uh, hopefully in the next future, we will also be able to better understand the predictive value of specific types and locations of BRCA mutations. The idea of de-escalation does not apply to other clinical scenarios at higher risk of relapse. Um, but again, we still have very limited evidence in this new emerging field. Uh, we are really looking ahead and uh, we don't know, we still don't know if de-escalation is safe and effective in any setting. And for now, it's not recommended outside of, of clinical trials. Very well. Very important, very important statement. Um, not recommended outside of clinical trials. Um, so now let's focus on the maintenance uh, treatment. Sarah uh, Sahin Acker. Um, she's asking, how should we set uh, the time restriction for de-escalation in uh, maintenance treatment? Well, um, first we need to distinguish between uh, primary and recurrent setting. So uh, first-line maintenance with PARP inhibitor is currently continued for two or three years based on the study designs of pivotal phase three trials. And uh, the rationale behind uh, this temporal cutoff used in these trials and uh, subsequently adopted in uh, regu regulatory approvals is based on the concept that most patients with advanced ovarian cancer typically relapse within two, three years. And so maintenance therapy aims at reducing the risk of disease recurrence during this uh, critical window. But as we, as we already said, the optimal duration of PARP maintenance should be probably rediscussed and further investigated, and uh, 12, 15 months may be sufficient for selected patients. And uh, this idea of reducing the duration of maintenance therapy is uh, even more attractive in the recurrent setting because 
Uh, here we currently use PARP inhibitors until an acceptable toxicity or further progression, which means that sometimes patients receive these therapies for several years. And so it would be very useful to uh, investigate whether, um, whether a, t a limited time, let's say five years or even less, uh, could be sufficient for selected patients in the recurrent setting. Because this approach would have the potential to reduce the risk of uh, platinum resistance after PARP inhibitor due to cross resistance and also reduce long-term toxicities uh, such as myeloid malignancies. Excellent. Now, Giuseppe, this question from Jessica Mauro, um, as we come to our last few questions of the podcast, she's asking, you know, you talked about some exciting strategies for de-escalation, but in your mind, is there one of these that should be the preferred or the one that looks to be most promising? Um, the, this is a, a very difficult question. We don't have uh, any strong data yet to prefer one approach over the other or to define guiding criteria. At the moment, the risk is that we just make speculations and uh, we really don't wanna do that. So uh, I would say that probably the most feasible strategy is the use of uh, PARP inhibitor in the new adjuvant setting because we already have some promising evidence from the, uh, from the NOW trial. Um, another appealing one is the possibility to reduce the duration or, or even omit PARP maintenance to improve the quality of life. And then of course, the the possibility to reduce the amount of adjuvant chemotherapy and the related toxicity is another attractive option. But uh, as of now, none of these strategies are recommended outside of clinical trials, and we need more solid evidence on their oncological safety before we can implement these strategies in clinical practice and uh, define criteria that can help us to choose the best option for, for each patient. Excellent. Um, Guido uh, Valsaki from Argentina, um, he's asking, do you think uh, these potential de-escalation strategies would also be an option for patients who are non-BRCA mutated? Yeah, well, um, the answer is yes. Uh, if by non-BRCA mutations, we refer to the spectrum of the BRCA-ness phenotype, uh, and so the main genes, genes involved in the homologous recombination pathway, including uh, PAL2 and uh, RAD51. And uh, the NOW trial actually included patients with uh, a germline mutation, not only in BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, but also uh, RAD51 and PAL2. Uh, of course, BRCA-mutated tumors are the ideal scenario for attempting de-escalation, but mutations in uh, other homologous recombination genes are also being uh, evaluated in ongoing trials. Yeah. So this question is from Matt Wager, University of Wisconsin. He's uh, He has a, a, a point of concern regarding the de-escalation. And he says, you describe a pattern of reduced response to subsequent platinum chemotherapy following progression after PARP inhibitors. In moving PARP inhibitors to the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting with the goal of reducing toxicities and providing biomarker-directed treatments, do we run the risk of increasing the utilization of more toxic chemotherapies when patients recur after PARP if platinum is no longer an option? Well, um, I wouldn't say that we would use more toxic chemotherapies, but yes, one of the major concerns about moving PARP inhibitor in the new adjuvant setting is the potential cross-resistance to subsequent platinum. 
there is a solid preclinic and clinical evidence that PARP inhibitor can reduce the subsequent response to platinum due to, due to cross-resistance mechanisms. But uh, the opposite is also true. You know, uh, cross-resistance works both directions. And so if we use PARP inhibitor prior to platinum exposure, we could also say that PARP inhibitor are probably better tolerated. We avoid cross-resistance due to prior platinum. And so we provide the full activity of PARP inhibitors as effective targeted treatments. Uh, we need to wait for more data on the risks and benefits of PARP inhibitor in the new adjuvant setting. And uh, we need to remember that platinum-based chemotherapy is, uh, is a milestone and uh, we need to be very careful before changing our current standard of care. So now, Giuseppe, one last question. And, you know, you previously mentioned, you said, well, less is more. Maybe that's uh, that's an optimistic uh, perception of uh, how the concept of de-escalation is going to be received, and particularly sometimes among patients themselves. So this last question is, you know, certainly once ovarian cancer has relapsed, it poses a difficult challenge in clinical practice and cure, um, and, and cure becomes very unlikely at that point. Therefore, much more effort is needed to develop new effective treatment options and combination regimens. That being said, what is the point of looking at de-escalation strategies, which is like looking in the opposite direction in that, you know, oftentimes patients say we want to be as aggressive as possible. And here we come talking about de-escalating treatment. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, um, the answer to this question is that um, when a cure becomes unlikely, then uh, preserving quality of life becomes even more important. Given that patients will have uh, multiple relapses and uh, will receive multiple lines of treatment. And so we know that the efficacy of PARP inhibitor in terms of uh, overall survival has been confirmed also in the recurrent setting, at least for patients with BRCA mutations. Uh, we have no concerns for BRCA mutated patients. And so again, in, uh, in this very specific setting of uh, platinum eligible BRCA mutated patients, we could reduce cumulative toxicity and delay time to next chemotherapy by offering uh, chemotherapy-free strategies with uh, PARP inhibitors or other targeted therapies. And uh, the most promising strategy is continuing PARP inhibitor beyond oligoprogression uh, combined with uh, local regional treatment. And we already have some retrospective evidence that warrants further investigation and then we have also the NEO trial, which is investigating the use of PARP inhibitor before and after cytoreductive, secondary cytoreductive surgery without chemotherapy. And uh, as we said, another interesting strategy could be to limit the duration of uh, PARP maintenance. So there is also rational for de-escalation in the, in the recurrent setting. But again, I have said this uh, several times. I will say it again. We need to remember that de-escalation in ovarian cancer applies only to very specific patients who are likely to be very responsive to PARP inhibitors because of their specific types and location of BRCA mutations or their HR deficiency status. Very well said. And uh, I want to thank you again uh, for your time and for this discussion. Always so, so informative. I always enjoy speaking with you and, and I really encourage everyone to uh, to take this uh, review article, read it, uh, read it carefully because it's just full of really great information. So 
Uh, Giuseppe Caruso, thank you so, so much. And uh, thank you for what you are contributing already to the field of gynecologic oncology. Very, very impressive. Thank you very much, Professor. It's always fun. <laughs>